touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Volkbaum. And we have a cool, super cool episode, but it has to be super cool for most applications. We're talking about superconductors today. Now, um, in order to talk about superconductors, really, we thought it was necessary to kind of backtrack and talk about uh, uh, electronics and electricity. Right. Yeah, because to understand why superconductors are so amazing, you, you first have to have that, that basic information about electronics in general. So here's a fundamental problem with electronics, with, with any sort of circuitry, with any kind of system, really. It's not just electronics. That's, that's one way we can look at it. But there's this problem where you pour energy into a system, and because of things like entropy, the output you get is less than the energy you put in. Now, of course, we know we cannot create or destroy energy, correct? Right. Yeah, it's one of those laws of thermodynamics. And if you try and break them, then the thermodynamics police show up. So actually, it just means that you cannot break that law. So if you can't break that law, if you pour energy into a system and you're not getting as much output as you're getting input, it's because you're losing energy through some other uh, uh, action. Normally, in, in almost every system that we're really familiar with, that's heat, right? Heat right. becomes a byproduct. Energy goes to produce heat, which means that whatever you were trying to do is slightly less effective than what you had intended. So we see this with things like car engines are a great example. You pour in fuel, the engine burns up the fuel and converts that into power, but you don't get as much power out as you're getting uh, energy in from the source of that fuel. So same sort of thing is true with electronics. And in this case, the thing we talk about when we're talking about losing energy is called resistance. Right. That's the resistance of any particular material to the flow of electricity through that material. So with that basic information there, now we're going to really dive into the very, very basic building blocks of electronics. Yes, because the thing is that superconductors lose no energy to resistance. Right, they have no resistance. Exactly. Uh, you know, however, they require extraordinarily cold temperatures, like on the magnitude of 39 kelvins, which is cold. That's cold, yeah. When you remember, it's not warm. zero kelvin is zero molecular movement. That's absolute zero. That's, that's like if you were to go into the deepest reaches of space and there are no molecules moving around. Everything is perfectly still. That's zero Kelvin. Right. 39, so, 39 is equivalent to negative 234 degrees Celsius or negative uh, 389 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. So that, that's that's pretty cold. But to understand, again, right. about resistance, so, let's let's take this 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 tour through the building blocks of electronics. So now the early, early understanding we had about electricity uh, gave us some ideas that we kind of have to work around these days, like specifically the idea of current. Current is a confusing thing for someone who has doesn't understand electricity because it run the direction of current runs counter to the actual flow of electrons. Oh, right. When, when all of these terms were being created, we didn't know as much about subatomic particles, uh, a.k.a. much at all right. anything so, as so we do today. So before we understood anything about electricity, uh, we began to learn things about about charge and the idea of opposite charges attracting one another and like charges repelling one another. Now, we could have called electrons positive charge. We could have done that. There's no reason why we would have said electrons are negatively charged. It's just a word, sure. right? But 
that was what was considered a negative charge. And then you would have the, the opposite would obviously be a positive charge. You know, we could have called these left and right or, or up and down or anything, really. But banana and oboe would be my nope. choices. Everyone knows the oboe is nature's opposite to the banana. So the, the these opposite charges, the negative and the positive, attract one another. Now, if you were to have a negatively charged material and a positively charged material, uh, you know, uh, within the same general area of each other, the potential that separated those opposite electric charges would be called voltage. All right. So that's when someone's talking about voltage, they're talking about this potential that's separating the opposite electric charges. And it's it's the capacity that they would have for doing work if those opposite charges were connected together somehow. So you would have to have something that would allow these charges to mix together. So back in the early days of electricity, before we really understood the mechanics of it, you would think that, all right, well, the, all the positively charged particles would leap over to the negative side and the negative charged particles would leap to the positive side until the charges had equalized. Equal right. And even if you had one material that was more negatively charged than the other material was positively charged, the actual negative charge would also even out eventually the like osmosis. Material. It yeah. would kind of work itself out. Yeah. So you would you would end up with a larger amount of material that had a negative charge. It would just be a lower negative charge than the original material you started with, right? So here we we were still thinking about this as these little charged bodies, these charged particles, both of positive and negative, zipping across. Um, and you can you can measure voltage by measuring the the two different points. So, uh, for example, uh, if you have one on the positive uh, node and one on the electric node, or negative node, rather, uh, you then look at those two contact points. That's where you get your voltage. Uh, if you're using the same point of contact and you're checking different other electrodes, uh, that same contact, the contact you're using for all of them, we usually call the ground. All okay. right? Sure. So that's the ground contact. Now... Uh, a material that does conduct electricity is called a conductor for that very reason, right? So, Convenient. And yes. there and there are some materials that are very good conductors. A lot of the metals, for example, are great conductors. How, how conductive a material is depends on how easily its component atoms donate electrons. Right, right. You need to have these free electrons. Uh, free electrons are this – when you have an atom, obviously you have an electron shell or several shells depending on how, um, the how large the atom is. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, and if you have free electrons that aren't tied down to anything on the outer shells, then that allows electricity to pass more freely. Because what happens is a new electron comes in. This is oversimplifying, but a new electron comes in and essentially bonks out one of the other electrons in that outer shell, which then will bonk out one further down the line. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a lot of free electrons, then that allows this this passage to happen fairly easily. And uh that's what allows you to connect these these differently charged uh, uh, materials to equal that out. We call this a current, but again, the current is the idea of positively charged particles passing from one material to the other. As we learned later, it's actually electrons that are passing through, not positive charges. Uh, but we we consider but we it stuck with the with yeah. the terminology, which means which means that when you say current, you're actually talking about the opposite direction as what the electrons are really going through. So if you're talking about a circuit's current, 
you are looking at it going positive to negative, when in reality, the electrons are going negative to positive. Basically proving that Benjamin Franklin was not a time traveler. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of jokes on the Internet saying that we have Benjamin Franklin to blame for this misunderstanding. That, again, is oversimplifying it. Franklin was one of, but not the only uh, he was leading a spokesperson, thinker. Uh, kind of, <laughs> he at kinda, a certain yeah. point. Yeah. But, yeah. He, he was like the mascot for electricity <laughs> before we knew what we could do with it. Yeah. Uh, now, current we measure in amperes or amps. And an ampere is the rate of flow of one coulomb of charge in one second past some given point. And so that raises the question, what is a coulomb? Uh, it's a whole bunch of charge. Yeah, it's a lot of charge. It's actually quite a bit of charge. But, you know, we won't boil it's, it's, bog it's, down. It's not, it's not technically important. No, not for, for, not, for not for this discussion. But just know that it's a lot of charge. So uh, if you hear someone talking about a coulomb, that's a lot of charge. Uh, now, current, of course, does have the direction as the flow of positive charges. You can think of positive charge in a way as uh, vacancies, holes, positive holes that could accept an electron, right? Because if, if you have, even if you have a buildup of negative particles, if there's no positively charged part, if there's no, if aren't, if there are no vacancies, uh, at another, uh, point, then those, that charge is just going to keep building up. It doesn't, the it's electrons have nowhere to, to go. It's not going to carry it anywhere. Right. Yeah. So uh, that brings us to the concept of an insulator. Now, an insulator is sort of the opposite of a conductor. This is a material that charge cannot flow through. Uh, those those component atoms, uh, their their electrons just want to stay put. Yeah, yeah. They usually the the usually you don't have any free electrons on the outside. They're all uh, they're all uh, bonded together. So that means that a, an incoming electron has nowhere to go. So with nowhere to go, then this stuff just halts the flow of electricity. And this includes things like air is an insulator. Now, granted, uh, if you were to pour enough energy into air, you could ionize it and then it becomes a conductor. But you have to pour energy into air for that to happen. That's what happens with lightning strikes, that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, uh, otherwise, it's a Yeah, more it's commonly, it's, it's, it's all those things, you know, like, like rubber or glass. Or- right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, we've covered... Conductors, we've covered insulators. That brings us to semiconductors. Now, this is uh, a term that a lot of people are familiar with because semiconductors, we talk about that all the time. We talk about electronics like microprocessors, uh, semiconductor plants, or a silicon wafer. That's what uh, a silicon chip that has a, a microprocessor on it. So what exactly is a semiconductor? Well, if you're looking at the name, it kind of gives it away. It's a material that can act like a conductor or it can act like an insulator. Now, naturally, if you were to just make a, if you were to make like a, a wafer of silicon, it was pure silicon. It would be an insulator because those, sure. those electrons are all tied up, right? Mm-hmm. So you can't push more electrons through it. However, if you were to start introducing impurities into the silicon on purpose, this isn't uh, right, right, right. Yeah, like uh, like phosphorus or boron are two typical ones. Exactly. Then you are doing a process that's called doping, and in the semiconductor business, that's not a bad thing. Uh, you won't get thrown out of the Hall of Fame of semiconductors for doping. In fact, doping is necessary to make a semiconductor work. Now, if you were to dope a semiconductor with uh, Atoms that have extra electrons, extra being free electrons in that that outer shell. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that they're actually carrying around 
more electrons. Suitcases full of electrons, right? Yeah, yeah. like phosphorus. Phosphorus exactly. has some free electrons. Phosphorus has a free electrons. Then you would get what is called n-type semiconductor material because it has more negatively charged particles. Negatively n-type, yes. N-type, yep. Mm-hmm. Now boron has. Uh, what we would call vacancies or holes that what electrons could flow into. So if you put boron, if you introduce boron into silicon, it would have uh, availability to accept electrons. A, a positively charged or P-type. Exactly. And if you were to take both of these types of doping and apply them to one silicon wafer, so that let's just say on the left side you have N-type silicon, and on the right side you have P-type silicon – that would allow electrons to flow across in the direction from negative to positive, correct? Correct. And it would prevent the flow of electrons to go from positive to negative because, again, those negative electrons in the n-type uh, silicon will will uh, repel any incoming electrons. This is the basis of a very specific type of electronic component called the diode. Diodes are important. They're kind of uh, a one-way street in electronics. And uh, and one of the reasons this is important is when you have something like uh, alternating current. Alternating current, it's exactly what it sounds like. It alternates direction. Remember, I was saying before, current is the, the flow of positive charge. Uh, in a circuit, if you have alternating current running through it, then that current is running one way and then the other way, and it alternates at thousands of times per second. Uh, we, we call it hertz, the, those cycles per second. So it's usually like 20,000 hertz. So 20,000 times a second, it's going poo back and forth. Now. <laughs> I like that sound effect. Poo. <laughs> yeah. That's the sound of electrons just zigzagging. Doing their thing. But a lot of our electronics don't run on alternating current. They need to run on direct current. So diodes are a good way of, of uh, addressing that because they will only allow charge to pass through in one direction. So even if you have an alternating current, then it's going to prevent uh, current from passing through one way and allow it to pass through the other way. Uh, that's one of the ways we use to uh, to transform alternating current into direct current. So right, and and this problem is why you get those little um, those little boxes on your uh, electric plugs to transform the uh, alternating current coming in through your. Through your system, through, right. the, through the power through the lines, power, yeah, yeah, through through that uh, the pluggy thing, outlets, <laughs> outlets. It's been a long day. It has, it has. I'm, I'm giggling day. more than usual. Sorry, we've also, people who we, hate me giggling. We've, we've been in a a meeting for a long, long time. If you need to know how long, uh, just a quick aside. Check out Josh and Chuck's series, Trapped in a Meeting. Uh, it's very good. It's very funny, and it's very real. It's it's so real. It's 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 my video debut. So check that out. That's right. You can see Lauren blocking me for almost every episode. I can just see like either the front of my face or the back of my head in almost every shot. But uh, that's just me complaining. That's fine. So let's move on to we we've we mentioned resistance. Resistance is this property that resists the flow of a charge, and it depends on the material of the conductor. Uh, and the flaws that that conductor might have that create resistance. Uh, the gauge of the conductor, so example, the, the gauge of wire. Mm-hmm. So how, how much of it there is. Right. The, the thinner the wire, the greater the resistance in general. So if you're talking about copper wire and you're talking about uh, smaller gauges, which are actually larger wires, it, I, I don't know why that is. I'm sure someone out there understands why 
the the gauge and size are inversely related. I'm sure it's one of those aperture related things. There's you know, something the, out there, I'm sure, I and, and I bet I could have found it out easily if I had looked it up. I didn't think to, but I'm sure some of our electrician uh, friends out there know exactly why. Anyway, the the larger the diameter of the wire, the lower the resistance. Uh, and the other thing is the temperature of the material itself. In fact, if you lower the temperature of the material, then you can uh, decrease the resistance, and that's the very Principle basis of behind superconductors. superconductors. Right. So, right. and and that that temperature comes in because, uh, uh, oh, you know, he- heat makes atoms bang around into each other more. Right. Which, which is part of what causes resistance. And and on the flip side. Uh, resistance causes heat. Right. Those atoms are starting to bang around. That actually creates heat. It's essentially friction on an atomic level mm-hmm. or subatomic level because you're talking about electrons. But it still creates heat, and that's where you get this loss of energy in your system or loss of output. You're not really losing energy in the sense that you know it's still going somewhere. It's just no longer contained within the system that you have created. Right. So what, what does Ohm's law have to do with this? Right. Ohm's law is the relationship between voltage and resistance. All right. So it is explained as voltage equals current times resistance or because we can switch these around, current equals voltage divided by resistance. So you look at the voltage across whatever the resistor itself is, whether it's a specific component in an electronic circuit or the overall circuit or just a wire. And uh, that way you can, if you know the voltage and the current, you can determine what the resistance is. Actually, as long as you know any of those two, you can determine the third because you know what how they relate to one another. Um, now... On top of all of this, we then have the concept of power. This is that output that you're getting. And power is, uh, we measure that in watts, W-A-T-T-S. And uh, power released into a resistor equals the voltage times the current or voltage squared divided by resistance or current squared multiplied by resistance. The point we're getting to is that these basic concepts of electronics are all very, very closely related to one another. And the more we understand about them, the greater potential we have to uh, creating new stuff that really takes advantage of. Oh, right. It it, it was our um, eventual understanding of these basic principles that has allowed us to kind of break the physics that that uh, or or, or twinge the physics that make them go. what, What happened was we understood things how we we understood how th- things worked in kind of our normal in uh, under normal experience. room temperature kind yeah. of yeah. situation cuz cuz you know early early people working in electronics early people early electronics work <laughs> neanderthals, neanderthals you know, that, you know <laughs> when they were trying to plug in their xbox uh, no no the, the people who were working on electricity very early on when we were just learning about the principles of electricity and and what it is, how these different uh, elements relate to one another, uh, they didn't necessarily have the capacity to alter things enough to really see, like, gosh, what would happen if we... Supercooled. Supercooled. Yeah, they didn't have mm-hmm. the ability to do it early, early on. But it wasn't too late when uh, they started to to really experiment with it. But we'll get into that. All right, so... That is our down and dirty basic electronics coverage there. And now we can actually look at superconductors and explain exactly what they are, how they work, and why they're so amazing. So before we jump into that, let's take a very quick break to thank our sponsor, 
All right. Back to superconductors. So we've covered conductors, insulators. We've covered uh, semiconductors. We've heard about resistance. What exactly is a superconductor? All right. Technically, this is some sort of material that will conduct electricity without resistance below a certain temperature. And you don't want that resistance, obviously, because, again, you have that loss of energy. You want it to be as efficient as possible. So if you could find a material that does not uh, convert any of that uh, energy into heat and it's all output, then you've just dramatically increased the efficiency of your system. Mm -hmm. It's about as close to perpetual motion as we can ever expect to get. Which is really exciting, uh, you know, for cost purposes and all kinds of all kinds of fun research bits, which we'll get into in a minute. Sure. And uh, in fact... Uh, according to superconductors.org, which has a lot of really fun information about superconductors, by the way, uh, scientists call it a, quote, macroscopic quantum phenomenon, end quote, which is huge, literally, because you're talking about macroscopic. <laughs> uh-huh. but, but that's the thing is that quantum phenomena, we normally think of quantum mechanics, quantum phenomena as happening on a subatomic scale, mm-hmm. right? So small that even our most powerful light microscope couldn't see it. You'd have to use something like a, an electron tunneling microscope. It's highly theoretical and, and all very tricky. It's really interesting because our laws of physics as we know it start breaking down at that point. But, uh, right. but, but it, it's really hard to figure out what's going on there because it's so darn tiny. Right. Yeah. It's it's a totally different set of rules than what we're used to on the classic level. And to have something on the macroscopic level that seems to behave under these quantum phenomena is pretty amazing. So exactly what's going on? Well, let's go back a little bit and look at the history of learning about this, right? So way back in 1911, uh, a Dutch physicist whose name I am now going to butcher, and I apologize to anyone out there who is from the Netherlands who's going to uh, wince at everything I say. Um, Heike Kammerling Onis of Leiden University. And I bet it's Leiden University too. As soon as I said it, it's Leiden, because Leiden jars. But anyway, uh, this physicist discovered superconductivity, uh, or at least observed it for the first time, as far as we know, looking at solid mercury. Uh, they, he had made a solid mercury wire and cooled it to the temperature of about four Kelvin using liquid helium, and that is about negative 452 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 269 degrees Celsius. And he noticed that when he did this, its resistance suddenly disappeared. Right. So this was interesting. This is the sort of thing that I I always imagine scientists doing, you know, like sitting around the lab and just saying, huh, I got this stuff. I wonder what happens if I do X to it, you know? Let's drop the temperature down to almost absolute zero and see if that does anything interesting. Uh, I know it's way more complicated than that, but I like to think that that's what scientists are doing. Uh, yeah, and and, and what's, what was really going on there was that um, uh, the the mercury at that temperature underwent a phase transition. Right. Um, but we'll get more into that in a second. Right. So then we skip ahead a little bit. Uh, that was 1911. In 1933, some German researchers, uh, Walter Meisner, not the famed theater uh, mentor, because I have a lot of Meisner technique. Different guy, sure. Different guy, Meisner. (laughs) And Robert Oceanfeld discovered that a superconducting material will repel a magnetic field. Now, this is super cool as well. I, oh dear! I, I keep using that. I didn't mean to, and I I should have caught myself. But it's it's okay. really interesting. It's really interesting. If you've ever seen, there's lots of videos on YouTube, right, of people using magnets and supercooled superconductor material, and they can lock the material 
in a levitating state above the magnet, right? Mm-hmm. Or sometimes they have a, uh, a superconducting base that is supercooled, and then they put a magnet on top of it, and it seems to just hang in the air. Now, technically, if you, if you actually listen to the physicists who talk about this, there's a great TED Talk where a guy demonstrates this. Mm-hmm. For back ex- in t- uh, 2011, it's, we'll link it on social. I mean, everyone's seen it, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, but, but yeah. We'll, we'll link it anyway, because it's still fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he explains that technically it's not levitation. It's what they call quantum lock. Uh, and so it's a little different from that. But we'll, we'll get more into that in a little bit. And then you skip ahead to 1957 when a trio of scientists, Leon N. Cooper, John Bardeen, and John Robert Schrieffer, proposed the first successful model that explained superconductivity. This might be a good time to mention that while we talk about models that explain superconductivity, Honestly, scientists are still learning about the properties of superconductors and how they do what they do and and why they operate at certain temperatures better than other temperatures. So while we're describing this stuff and while we have superconductors in actual use around the world in thousands of different applications – we still don't understand everything about Precisely it. Precisely how it's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when I say we, I'm not talking about just me and Lauren. I'm talking <laughs> about super smart people. That that's their job. We're still learning. This is one of those things that I always find exciting. It's just, you know, when you know that you don't know everything, that always gives you that kind of tingle to, like, you want to learn more. So their theory became known as the BCS theory, and it earned them the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1972. Now, we kind of need to sort of talk about what this theory says. Okay, the, the atoms in a conductive material that have given up electrons are uh, are, are then positively charged ions, right? Right, right. Okay. Um, and when electrons are flowing through them, they're attracted to those negative, negatively charged electrons. Cool. You're right. Uh, cool. That's a really bad word to use in the I middle know, of this podcast. I know. Okay. Already happened to me three <laughs> or four times. Under under usual circumstances, uh, those ions kind of crunching together towards the electrons that are flowing through them would cause resistance, mm-hmm. but not in superconductors. And what we kind of didn't realize until we started getting into quantum mechanics is that that resistance happens because electrons have properties of both particles and waves. Right. This this is that duality thing that always got me confused when I got to that point in learning about science was the idea that something can behave as both a wave and a particle. We see this a lot in quantum mechanics, and it's part of the reason why it's such an interesting and counterintuitive field. Absolutely, yeah. It's, I mean, honestly, my brain kind of just goes, well, well, okay, that's that's fine. To be fair, I think a lot of string theorists have that same reaction to their work. I mean, I'm being honest. I've seen interviews where they say, there comes a point where you just have to say, this is how it works, because it's how it works. It, it, it always feels a little bit like doublethink to me. But yeah, yeah so we've got uh, electrons acting like particles and waves, and um, those excited ions that are in the conductive material kind of create counter ripples in this this flowing lake or river of electrons. Okay. And and that winds up causing that resistance. I see. But in superconductors, the electrons assume a nearly identical speed and direction, forming a kind of single organized wave that resists that disruption from 
the ions. I see. So instead of having let's 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 put this on a macro scale and keep in mind that whenever you change anything from the quantum scale to the macro scale and you're using an analogy, it's imperfect to say the uh, right. And this is also an extreme oversimplification that I am right. presenting to you. So, but let's imagine that you have a room full of people and you have one doorway leading out of the room, and someone walks into the room and says free cake, and then leaves. And then everyone just tries to rush the door. All right, well, the fact that people could only fit through the door a few at a time, but everyone's trying to get through there, that kind of represents resistance, in a way. Now let's say that someone comes in and says, uh, you know, free cake, but there's plenty for everyone, so just come in in the same order that you you know, walked into the room, and everyone obeys the rules, and they all just smoothly exit. That's kind of the idea of superconductors. You've created this experience where everything's happening in a very, uh, a, a, a very, very controlled, ordered, controlled, way. right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of like a, if all those people were members of a dance troupe, and they just kind of fell into line and and danced quietly out. In fact, that is an uh, analogy I've seen a se- several times when looking at superconductors. Now, the the BCS theory that we had mentioned. Uh, explains that the electrons travel in ever-changing Cooper pairs, uh, named after Leon N. Cooper, one of the three of that, that BCS team. BCS theory, right? right. And that, uh, so you have that leading electron. The, the pairs have a leading electron and a following electron. They're both going down this pathway. Keeping in mind, electrons do repel one another. Uh, yeah, uh, so, but, so the, which is where the, where the ever-changing comes in. They, uh, they kind of swap around a whole bunch. Right. So you've got this pair going down swapping places occasionally, uh, and the positively charged ions start to be attracted to that leading electron, which means that you have a, a growing positive charge, which starts pulling that second electron even harder. That creates this increased pressure, if you will, of pull, really. Right. It's pulling those electrons even harder than it normally would because the positive charge is growing. And all of this, all of these different opposing forces essentially end up canceling each other out so that you don't end up with resistance. Right. And now, this, this is opposite to the way that resistance normally works, which right. is so cool. Right. Right. Not cool. So interesting. <laughs> now, keep in mind, this was the first working model of superconductivity. And, uh, then future study would end up kind of tweaking this and changing our understanding a little bit. Uh, in fact, uh, in 1962, we then had uh, Brian D. Josephson, who predicted that electrical current would flow between two superconducting materials, even if they were separated by non-superconductors or even insulators. Uh, now, that prediction that he made was later on confirmed, and he earned the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1973. So one year after the BCS team won the Nobel Prize in physics. So clearly superconductors, big important thing in physics uh, from the 50s through the 70s and up through to today. Oh, fact. sure, sure. Um, more, more research conducted in the 80s would change the field all over again, but we will talk more about that in a moment. Yeah, yeah. We have to, we have to then discuss the different major types of superconductors. And uh, they're... Different ways you can divide them up, but the most common way is to refer to them as type 1 and type 2, which not that helpful upon the surface. So let's actually define these. Type 1 superconductors uh, made out of pure metal, right? So you get this pure metal material, whatever the metal is, and then you have to cool it to a point where the metal exhibits zero electrical resistivity and perfect diamagnetism. Uh, so... 
we're talking now about any particular metal. It doesn't matter which one it is. The temperature will will vary depending upon the actual metal you're using. Right. Right. So lead is different from copper, that kind of thing. But uh, they all have this. They all have the, they all have this specific uh, uh, critical temperature. Right, and most of them are pretty cold. So you have to use something really, really cold to cool them, like liquid like helium, li- right? Which is hard to get. It's it's, it's very rare. expensive. It's uh, expensive, yes. Mm-hmm. And there's not that much left of it. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, we don't we don't have enough helium for all the stuff we would like to do with helium. For one thing, there are all those children's parties, and you think I'm joking, but I'm not. Helium is actually being used in those helium balloons that you see, that you can go out and buy. There are scientists who say it's a real shame that we're using helium to entertain children when we could be using it to run MRI machines or a super collider or hmm. one of a thousand other devices. So so that's one of the, the downsides of the Type 1 superconductors is that they do need to be cooled to these very, very low temperatures. And if they go above that temperature, the superconductivity is broken. You, you can get it back by cooling it back down again. Right. But the actual properties it exhibits as a superconductor go away if the temperature uh, goes over whatever its critical uh, temperature is for being a superconductor. Another thing that will cause the the breakdown of the superconductive state is uh, if you subject it to what's called a critical magnetic field. Right. So remember, we we talked about diamagnetism. This means that magnetic fields cannot penetrate this superconductor metal while it's in the superconductor state. So you can't make uh, it, it, it's it's what allows a superconductor to kind of. Uh, float above a, a magnet, although with type 1 superconductors, that always tends to be wobbly. If you've ever seen uh, a demonstration of this, the whatever the material the is little bit floating, is, is going to be kind of kind of spinning and, yeah. and, and shaking. It and doesn't hold it doesn't hold a position very well. It, it does tend to wobble quite a bit. But uh, if you were to introduce a magnetic field that is stronger than what that superconductor can uh, uh, withstand, deflect. yeah, mm-hmm. well, yeah, the expel really because it's expel. expelling magnetic correct, fields. Correct. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, if, if if it's too strong a magnetic field, it again will break down that superconducting state, and it will just become a regular conductor as opposed to a superconductor. So you have to maintain its critical temperature and make sure it is not subjected to a magnetic field above that critical limit. All right, so that's type 1 superconductors, which then raises the question, what is a type 2 superconductor? Now, these are made up of alloys, uh, and they have a much more complex diamagnetic feature to them, right? They're not, they're not as simple as type 1. They actually have two thresholds for critical magnetic fields. All right, so if it's, if the magnetic field is below the primary threshold, uh, the type 2 uh, superconductor acts more or less like a type one. So in other words, if you supercool this down to below that, that threshold, it'll behave just like it would be if, just as if it were a type one superconductor. Now, um, if, uh, if that magnetic field goes above that threshold, but still is below the second threshold, you then have a superconductor entering into what is called a vortex state. Which to me just sounds like it's some sort of science fiction-y, like, 
pulled through the portal into another dimension. But that's not exactly what's happening. Uh, it's it's pretty science fictiony. It, it, it's what's what's going on here is that um uh currents or or whirlpools of of superconducting material will flow around spots of normal material. Yeah. So you have these islands of conducting material and these vortices of superconducting material. So within the same uh, substance. Some of it is acting like a superconductor. Some of it's acting like a conductor. And this creates really interesting properties that we'll, that we'll yeah. cover in a sec here. Right. So that's what really makes it different. Now, granted, if you were to, again, increase that magnetic field so that it goes above that second threshold, the superconductivity properties break down. Break again. down. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and you do have to cool down the type two superconductors, although there's been some amazing work Fairly recently, and that that, that that '80s stuff that I was talking about, right? Yeah. That will that will cover in a minute. That really kind of give us some hope for future applications. Uh, but before we get into all of that, I think it's important we take another quick break and thank our other sponsor. All right, so we talked a little bit earlier about this levitating effect that you can see with superconductors. It's not really levitating. It's called quantum lock or flux pinning. Right. And this has to do with that vortex state that we mentioned a second ago. Right. This is for type 2 specifically. Uh, Mm -hmm. Type 1 superconductors can do this too. But as we said, they're very unsteady. But type 2, if you keep it within that critical uh, boundary between those two thresholds we talked about, where it's above the type 1 threshold but below the type 2 threshold, you can have this quantum lock where you can put a a magnet above a superconducting base or a super a supercooled superconductor over a magnet and lock it into a position where it's seemingly just floating really it is floating above the the magnet or you know for the magnets flowing above the superconductor, however you've had it arranged, and that and that that TED talk that we mentioned uh, from from 2011 that probably you've seen a uh, call that that was calling it quantum levitation. You know, it's it's the dude just just pushed a magnet around and it kind of flowed in a circle, yeah. and it was what what he had was he had a I think he had a big circular like magnet, a big donut, like it was yeah. like a, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it was a do- exactly it looked like a donut in the sense that it had a a band of magnetic material that runs in a circle. Uh, but was uh, it was just a band. It wasn't a, a disc or anything. It was a band of this magnetic material. So, yeah, like a donut. And then had this super-cooled, super-conducting material that he put – he put it in place above the band. So it's not touching the band at all. It's floating above it. And he could actually change the orientation of the superconductor. So it could be flat or he could tilt it. So suddenly it was at a 45-degree tilt. And then he could just give it a little push – and it would float around the circle of this magnetic band. Just floating as though it were on a track, and it, but not touching anything. Right. So there's there's no real – apart from air resistance, there's no real force acting against it. So in other words, it's about as close to perpetual motion as you can get. It would just keep going around and around and around until the air resistance finally uh, would uh, make it stop. And he even demonstrates that – uh, it is completely independent of gravity as well. Uh, if you were to turn the whole thing upside down, it would then. Did. Yes, which, which he was does. Great. It is pretty awesome. Uh, it then floats underneath the band. But again, you can change the the orientation of the superconducting material. Right. And it's it. It's kind of a mind-blowing video. It's it's really terrific. Uh, and and what's what's going on in it is that um, so as superconductors um cool down. 
they increasingly expel magnetic fields. Right. And uh, when you when you get a type two superconductor into that vortex state, um, electrons can can form these kind of eddy currents that produce a counterfield. Right. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. And and so you've got this. You've got this expelling of fields out from the superconducting material. You also have the norm, the quote unquote normal islands of material in there that are attracted to whatever the magnet is. Um, and so it's the balance of those two that make that type two superconductor stable as opposed to the type ones that are all wobbly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, th- there's, there's also been, uh, you, you might remember, uh, back around the year 2000, uh, some, some people, Got a whole lot of attention for levitating a frog and, you know, water and hazelnuts and yeah, all yeah. kinds of fun stuff. Uh, it, it was along the same principles and, and works because although technically, you know, we, we think of things like water and organic tissue like frogs as being non-magnetic, um, they will exhibit a very weak repulsive effect when placed in a very strong magnetic field. I know that I can be repulsed by frogs quite easily. However, uh, if you want to have a fun experiment... Uh, with frogs and magnetism, you take a frog and you go up to your little sister and you rub it against her hair and then you run. It doesn't actually do anything scientific, but it can be p- quite amusing. Now, over at How Stuff Works, we have articles that cover all sorts of stuff and we even have one on superconductors. And there was one particular section of that article I wanted to quote. So a little this, sidebar that was yeah. that was just very effective. Right. This comes straight from our article on superconductors. Superconductors boast more than zero resistance. They also offer extremely high current carrying density, exceptionally low resistance at high frequencies, very low signal dispersion, and high magnetic field sensitivity. They exclude externally applied magnetic fields, exhibit unusual quantum behaviors, and are capable of near light speed signal transmission. This combination of factors effectively rewrites the rules for electromagnetic industries and suggests numerous possible innovations, including improved electric power transmission, generation and storage, smaller, more powerful magnets for motors, cutting-edge medical equipment, improved microwave components for communications and military applications, vastly boosted sensors, and using magnetic fields to contain charged particles. So that's, that's you know, we, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the applications, but the but potential yeah, but, is phenomenal. Mm-hmm, yeah, and, and thank you to uh, Nicholas Gerbis, or Gerbis, depending on how you pronounce that, for uh, for writing that excellent little bit for that article on superconductivity for us. Yes, yes. It's a great read. I do recommend it. Uh, and there are lots of different substances that can exhibit superconductivity. Uh, some of them, were, you know, the pure substances we talked about, the metallic elements can do this if you cool them to the correct temperature. Uh, some of them, some of them that are not metals can uh, exhibit superconductivity. Like uranium? If, yeah. Or mm-hmm. selenium or silicon. Mm-hmm. If you, if you lower the temperature enough, you have to and increase also increase the pressure. The pressure. Right. Yeah. That's, they don't, if it's at just a normal one atmosphere pressure, you can't get it cold enough to do that. But if you increase the pressures, uh, then that, the combination of the pressure and the temperature will have them exhibit this, uh, superconductive property. And then, uh, that, then you have hot superconductors. Oh, right. This is that recent, more recent research that was begun in the 80s. And uh, so, so tell us, tell us what hot superconductors do. Okay. So, uh, you know, we've talked about the idea of cold fusion, the idea of having a fusion reactor that could operate at temperatures that are much lower than what we would expect a fusion reactor to to perform at, mm-hmm. right? 
Uh, a hot superconductor is kind of the opposite idea. And while we don't know if cold fusion will ever really work, we do know that hot superconductors are a thing. Right, right. Well, But yes. when we say hot, we're talking relative terms. It's still very, very, very cold. It's still cold enough to kill you if you were to be exposed to it. But it's not so cold as to require liquid helium to cool it. Um, so... This was uh, something that that lots of different people were working on uh, throughout the years uh, and, you know, just sort of experimenting with different combinations of materials. Again, getting back to that scientist in the lab saying, huh, I wonder what would happen if we did this to this. Uh, that, the, that, that first one was in 1986. I believe it was discovered by IBM researchers. That's and, right. Uh, they, they presented a, a superconductor of um, barium. Hmm. Lanthanum. Lanthanum and copper oxide. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it could achieve zero resistance at 35 Kelvin. Right. Which um, is, uh, what? Minus, uh, 238 Celsius and a minus 397 Fahrenheit. Wow. Lauren does some wicked math in her head. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so instead of using liquid helium, that meant that you could use liquid nitrogen, which is much more plentiful and inexpensive. Right. Yes. You can, you know, compared to liquid helium, liquid nitrogen, we're lousy with it. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can pick it up at the supermarket if you really need to. <laughs> the point being that it is much, it really lowered the bar for what you could make a superconductor out of, which meant that suddenly you could use them for a lot more applications. You know, before, only the most well-funded applications could ever afford any sort of superconductor material because everything we had needed to be cooled down so far that you had to have liquid helium to do it. Right. And there are there are plenty of places out there that are using that kind of material, like uh, the Large Hadron Collider, for example, uses superconductors in its in its uh, uh, electronics in order for it to increase the speed of proton beams so that they can collide at massive, massive speeds and create uh, a situation that looks like a tiny microcosmic version of the Big Bang, mm-hmm. or shortly, immediately following the Big Bang, I guess I should say. Uh, the world record for the uh, hottest, quote-unquote, superconductor was set in 1994, and that was at 138 Kelvin, which is only a, a mere negative uh, um, 135 Celsius and negative 211 Fahrenheit. Right. So, again, still really cold to us. But, but downright balmy compared yeah. to most other superconductors. Yeah, it, it's like a, it's like a, a vacation in the tropics, really. And uh, they were using thallium-doped mercuric cuprate which was comprised of the following elements. So this is what you have on your shopping list if you want to make one of these. Uh, it's not easy, and most of these things are poisonous. Mercury, uh, which is poisonous. Thallium, which is also poisonous. Barium, uh, calcium, copper, and oxygen. It's not something that you can actually go and put together on your own. I wouldn't recommend trying, no. necessarily. No. No, 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 your average science lab is not going to be able to produce that kind of superconductor. But uh, then we can talk a little bit about what we would use this stuff for, or, or what's what, being used already, how it's being already used. Uh, yeah, um, uh, MRI, I think, is the probably most common thing. Right. That, that's magnetic resonance imaging. Yes, so MRIs <laughs> are used to look at soft tissues, right? Because x-rays are very good at looking at things like, like your skeleton, mm-hmm. but they don't 
they don't pick up soft tissue very well. MRIs, however, are very good at looking at soft tissue. So they became very uh, important in the for- field of medicine, and superconductors are a, a great component for MRI machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Jonathan mentioned a moment ago, uh, super colliders, such as the Large Hadron Collider. Yep. And, there, of course, there are more than just that. That's just probably the most famous one that people mm-hmm. have heard about uh, recently. Uh, magnetic levitation trains, maglev trains. There's a, a couple of examples of these, mostly out in Japan, uh, where the idea is to use the superconductors along a track. So you supercool them and you uh, create this... Uh, this this quantum lock phenomena, and then there are magnets on the actual train that can allow it to levitate above the track, thus allowing it to move without that uh, friction that would normally cause uh, the train to be less efficient, and uh, and allow it to to move at a, a high speed um, without with a relative minimum of energy input. Right. Right. Uh, and of course, you could also make a train the other way around where the superconductors are on the train and the magnets are in the, the track. In fact, I think Japan might have examples of both. I wrote an article years and years ago for Discovery News about it, but uh, frankly, I, I honestly can't remember at this point. But uh, other things we could use it for, uh, nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. <laughs> that's uh, that, that's just re- very useful in uh, uh, pharmaceutical pharmaceutical research uh, a See, lot it, of it catches long <laughs> it does yeah biotechnologies etc cetera, etc cetera. um yep. they're they're looking forward to uh to maybe trying to use this in in more efficient forms of energy storage or uh energy uh capture like wind turbines right also uh just other electric generators in general so that you don't lose as much of that electricity that you've generated through heat so again that, that's one of those things you know if we can make power systems more efficient where more of the power we are, more of the electricity we're generating gets to wherever it needs to be to do work, then that's a win for everybody. It means that you have to consume fewer resources because you don't have to worry about losing you know, X amount of the energy you're trying to produce as heat. Oh, right. Uh, also, on the on the quantum level, this could be very useful for things like quantum computers because uh, uh, it's it's working on that tiny. Quantum scale. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, quantum computers, there's always a super cooling element with quantum computers as well in order to make them work. Uh, we've talked about quantum computers in previous episodes, but I have a feeling we're going to need to do a full episode on quantum computers to really explain what the concept is and how they work. Because, again, it gets pretty, I guess Einstein would call it spooky. I guess I guess he would. Yeah. Um, uh, but only from speaking, far away. Spooky speaking of distance. spooky, uh, quantum entanglement, uh, superconductors are used to create quantum entanglement. Ah, so which is, again, a very important uh, component in things like uh, the quantum cryptography. Right. Now, you have a note here that I've read, I see in front of me. I, I, I wanted to mention that this is not anti-gravity. Right. Um, it, you know, it, it is, you are, you are canceling out a magnetic field. Right. But it's not like you have created some way of some bubble. You, like you can't turn a switch on in a room gravitons. and suddenly everyone floats off the floor. Exactly. Yeah. No. And and we're we're not we're not uh, counteracting gravitons. We still don't really know how gravity actually works. Right, I mean, the, we we obviously see uh, the effect of it. Right. But, but we don't see the actual mechanism. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, back in 1992, there was a Russian physicist whose name I'm not even going to attempt right now. Um, but uh, but he he claimed to have successfully tested this device that would shield an object from gravity. Um, it, it involved levitating a a superconducting disc above a magnet, 
And um, no one, no one in the past couple decades has figured out how has has been able to replicate this experiment. So that's not that's not what we're talking about. Right, right. And then, of course, uh, the other note I was going to mention was the one about people thought that we somehow reverse engineered superconductors from alien spacecraft. Yeah, because you know at Area Fifty One they were they were holding all those that 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 alien spacecraft, That's and so, so weird. they were. To, you wrote that in. I an wrote article. that whole article, Area Fifty One, and I don't remember any alien spacecraft being in there. <laughs> no, this is again one of those conspiracy theories where people thought that perhaps humans are not ingenious or inventive enough to have come up with this on our own. Uh, now, granted, since we already talked about how the first. Uh, experiments with superconductivity date back to 1911. I think we can be safe to say that it's not the Area 51 reverse engineering nonsense. Well, sure, and, sure. Uh, H- however, I mean, you know, it's, I, I do see the connection since we started really, uh, pushing, pushing the technology off the ground in the 1950s huh, and 19, hmm, and 1947 being the year that, um, oh, the Roswell incident? Of the Roswell incident. And also, all of that. Keep in mind that Roswell and Area 51 are not remotely close They're to each other. They're clearly connected. So I, I, this is where Jonathan says, ladies and gentlemen, humans are amazingly smart and amazingly creative. And, and we come up with some amazing accidents. Yeah. There's sometimes we find out, we find stuff that we weren't even looking for, but it becomes really important. And I don't, I personally, whenever I think of these reverse engineering stories, it really to me is just downplaying how, um, how brilliant people can be. And that kind of gets me a little upset because I've met folks who are truly geniuses at specific fields. And, uh, and you know, I think it's an insult to them to say that, oh, obviously no person could have thought this up. It's too magical. It must have come from somewhere else. Also, reverse engineering isn't really easier necessary i mean yeah because you have to figure out how it works in the first place and then it's not like an independence it. day guys yeah. you don't you don't just no it doesn't involve using a mac computer to upload a virus to a mothership boy we could do a full episode on just uh it, that would be fun to do sometime do a tech stuff episode where we just pick a science fiction film and pick apart all the technical inaccuracies in that film and we could do that occasionally just once us, in a while let us know let us know how you guys feel about that because that could either be incredibly tiresome or really fun and yeah. i'm not entirely sure which one if, if you guys if you guys do think that that would be a fun idea let us know and uh, i go ahead and propose that independence day could be the first film that we tackle that would be a fun one but we don't have to obviously if you all think no that's lame we'll, we'll let stuff you should know do it so guys uh thank you so much for tuning in this has been a really fun podcast to to really dive into something really interesting and and still mysterious. We're still learning about it. I can't wait to learn more about this and see how we use it in the future. I expect that this is going to be one of those transformative scientific developments that really makes the future an exciting time to live in, which is good because I don't have any choice in the matter. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, let us know. Send us an email. That address is techstuff at discovery.com. Or drop us a note on our social media. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We have the handle TechStuffHSW. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>